Let us pray. O God, by your Spirit, tell us what we need to hear and show us what we ought to do to obey Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our reading is from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. I invite you to listen now for the Word of God. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, What is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. When we lived in Memphis, I was invited to come and preach for um, the folks who would gather at the Memphis Rescue Mission in downtown Memphis. The person who sent the invitation to me Uh, said that I needed to include an invitation at the end of my sermon so that anyone who wanted to come forward and profess faith in Jesus Christ could do so at the conclusion of that service. So I pushed back. I didn't push back because I have anything at all against people hearing the proclamation of the gospel and being invited to commit themselves in discipleship to that gospel. 
I like to believe I try to do that every Sunday. But I explained, Presbyterians, uh, we don't really do the whole uh, invitation and come down to the front thing. Not that we are averse to others doing it. I said it's just not the way we do it. We do it differently. And uh, she responded to me rather directly and said, this is really important to us here at the rescue mission. This is the main reason we are here. If they do not have the spiritual food of Jesus, all the food we offer them is useless. I could see that a sermon at the Memphis Rescue Mission uh, without an invitation was just not in the cards. Uh, It wasn't part of their tradition. And so I agreed rather reluctantly. After all, I, I cannot dispute that the church is all about spiritual food. Uh, spiritual food is important, and it really shouldn't matter the way people are invited to respond, just that they are. So that was my rationale for going against my own inclinations. And on the day I was to preach, I stood and preached the gospel as I understood it, and then gave the invitation as best I could. I was and am not Billy Graham, but a few people did come forward at the end and were promptly met by the staff of the mission, and they were prayed with and given some literature. All in all, I felt good about it. Until I saw the worshipers leaving the service from the, from the back, it, it, they had another door kind of back here, and that's everybody came forward to leave the service, uh, and they had their hands outstretched at the door, and they were handed a, a token as they moved into the kitchen and into the dining hall of the Memphis Rescue Mission. A token. I learned later that the token was an acknowledgement that they had been to worship. And without that token, they would not get to eat. Now I admit, I've looked out over many a congregation, including this one on a Sunday, and saw what looked to be some people who might have been here under duress, perhaps uh, some quid pro quo going on. If you don't come to worship, you don't get to eat out afterwards, this sort of thing. But I don't think I've ever preached to an audience as captive as those hungry, homeless men looking for their meal token. Now, I'm not opposed to the food of the Spirit, the word of faith, and food for the body also being served in the same place. I'm not opposed to that at all. We we do that here, I believe. But I did leave that mission wondering about the order of things, the order of things. There is no doubt in James about the order of things. Twice in this part of his letter, he refers to the law of Moses, specifically to the book of Leviticus, two verses from the same chapter of Leviticus, only four verses apart or three verses apart. The first comes from Leviticus 19.15, and in full it reads, You shall not show partiality to the poor or deference to the great. 
You shall not show partiality to the poor or deference to the great. In the early church as today, it is not usually partiality to the poor that you see, but deference to the great, to the rich. And so James takes us uh, into a scene, as you heard me describe uh, to the children. Uh, It could either be, it's called an assembly, it's the same word that would be used for synagogue. It could mean a worship assembly or it could mean a, a court, a courtroom. We're taken into that scene where one person comes in clad in fine clothing, his fingers dripping with gold, and is given that preferential treatment that Leviticus warns against. And we compare him to another who comes in whose clothing and bare fingers show his poverty. This preferential treatment, James says, is contrary to what we know in the law of Moses and what we know of that law as interpreted by Jesus, which is that the poor are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, as James puts it. Jesus teaches that those who live close to the edge, who have, who have nothing, are often those who are most filled with faith. Far from using this as a valorization of the poor or of poverty, Jesus instead lifts up this vision of a place and a people where those who have means are called to the same faith as those who do not, and in this way see themselves as members of one human family. You remember Jesus telling the story of the widow who puts in two copper coins and Jesus announces that she has put in more than anyone else because she put in all that she had, a sign of tremendous faith. And he tells the story of the rich young man whose resources keep him from faith as a model of how riches can get in the way of trust in God and following in the way of Jesus. It's taken me a long time to see what it was that, that bothered me. I mean, more deeply than just being out of my element, so to speak. What it was that bothered me so much about that day at the rescue mission. There was a real sense that those of us who were giving, whether it was me giving the sermon or the mission personnel giving the food, were in a superior position to those who were receiving. Because of their status, most of them as homeless, because of their ragged clothing, because they carried in their arms all of their possessions, we made many assumptions about them that day. We assumed that they lacked in faith, They needed the bread of heaven as much, if not more, than they needed the bread of earth, we believed. They needed a token that proved their faith before they could be fed what their bodies so desperately needed. But James reminds us that it is the poor who often have the most to teach about faith if we're willing to walk alongside them, not above them, but alongside them. 
if we are ready to sit down together at one table, seeing ourselves as equals in God's eyes, we would discover that the kingdom of heaven is defined not by silver and gold, but by love that shows no partiality. It is this love that is summed up in what James calls the royal law. That other part of that same chapter in Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Unless we see the poor among us as neighbor and not other, we will not have the chance to learn what they can teach us. What, that we, and we will not have the chance to share in one holy communion. For James and his community, the issues of poor and rich were front and center. It was, it was a terribly divided um, community in that early church. And both were in the same house of worship. And today those issues remain, no doubt. But for us, there are many other voices beyond just poor and rich that we are tempted to ignore. Those who are shown different treatment because of their perceived otherness. The radical nature of the law in Leviticus and reaffirmed here in James cannot be ignored by anyone who carries the name of Christ. James points out that the law is the law is the law whether it's murder or adultery or showing partiality and not being a good neighbor. All of it is the same law. It is all of a piece. Recall when Jesus is talking about love of neighbor and he's confronted by, of all things, a lawyer who asks him at the end of his teaching about Leviticus, um, who is my neighbor? You remember this story, and instead of answering his question straightforwardly, Jesus tells a story that we have come to know as the parable of the good Samaritan. But the truth be told, he was a hated Samaritan, would not have been seen as good by anyone involved in this story. Jesus asks him at the end, who proved to be the neighbor? And the the lawyer is forced to say, hear this carefully, the one who showed him mercy. Mercy. All are our neighbors, especially those we might be quick to dismiss, to say sit in the back or sit at my feet so I can teach you. These are those who should be sitting by our side with the same equality that God already sees in them and in us. A sign of our commitment to this ongoing response, I believe, happens here during the winter, every Wednesday night, when we welcome homeless guests into Wilson Hall for Room in the Inn. It would have been so easy for this congregation all those years ago when we started this, when it was presented to us, to say no. There were not very many churches in Williamson County at that time involved in Room in the Inn. But not only did this congregation say yes, in the same breath the congregation also said 
These are our guests, not our project, not our charity, but our guests. So we welcomed them on Wednesday nights, the same nights that we gather as a church family around a common meal, and we ate together at one table as one family. As we have shared hospitality with these guests over the years, we have learned much from them about faith without partiality. And it is after we have all been fed food for the body and we've all experienced that hospitality of being welcomed at a table and the hungry among us have had their fill, it is then that we turn to the word in thanksgiving. This seems to me, at least, to be the right order of things. You know, there was a time in the history of our, in our tradition, the Reformed tradition, when many congregations would not allow you to come to this communion table unless you had a token. It was a practice begun by none other than John Calvin, who would not permit anyone to come to the table in Geneva who had not first been examined by him as to their worthiness to receive the sacrament. When they had been examined and deemed worthy, they were given a token. And without that token, they were not allowed access to the table of the Lord. Somewhere along the line, thankfully, it occurred to the Reformed tradition as we continued to reform that if worthiness was a requirement for the table of the Lord, then no one could take this bread or drink this cup. I know I could not. Indeed, if there's any requirement for this table at all, it is our recognition that we are not worthy to dine at it. Not one of us. That we all stand before God in need of grace the grace found in bread and cup and life together, all of us without partiality. It seems to me that James, perhaps more than any other, Bible, uh, any other writer in our Bible, longs for the day when our faith and our actions are not separated from each other, but flow in and through each other as we take a breath in and take a breath out, so faith and works belong together. We continue to long for that day and live toward it as we gather at this table. The only token in our hands is our deep need for this meal and for one another and for the Christ who sets this table before us, a sign of what God intends not just for us, but for all the world. May it be so. Amen.